This program is brought to you by the University of California, Davis on iTunes U. For more information, please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu. Hi, Rob. My name's Cassandra. I'll be your nurse this afternoon. Awesome. Cassandra Kilmer has been a nurse at this small rural hospital in Willits, California for five years. And in that time, she has seen her share of friends and neighbors who have faced challenging health issues. But never did she expect to face death so suddenly, not once, but nearly twice. Last year, her husband of 18 years died from cancer, and the tragedy struck again. On a windy cold day in December, her 10-year-old son, Ian, unexpectedly fell off the living room sofa in their mountaintop house. Her older son, Travis, carried Ian to the car, and the three of them drove to the Frank R. Howard Memorial Hospital, 20 miles away. I was definitely scared when he was, we tried to um, get him to respond to us, and he wouldn't. He just stared at us. He wouldn't say anything. He couldn't move on his own. As they sped down the mountain, Cassandra's mind was racing through possibilities of what could be wrong with her son. Most definitely the longest trip that I've ever made, and, you know, there were just so many possibilities going through my mind as to what it could be, none of them good, and just hopeful that, you know, it wasn't too busy there and that, you know, the best doctors were going to be on duty and things would go quickly. When Cassandra arrived here at the Willits Hospital Emergency Center, her son Ian was unresponsive. The emergency room doctors immediately went to work to try to save this boy's life. The vein is, is lateral to the artery, right? Dr. Ace Barish, an internal medicine specialist, was pulling double duty that day by working the ER. He was uh, comatose. He was, uh, he was uh, hyperventilating, breathing very hard. He was deathly pale. He was not responsive to anything, and uh, one glance told me that there was a good chance this young man was going to die. Barish immediately set up a strategy to figure out what was happening. In the meantime, the doctor was also dealing with another critical emergency case in the adjacent bed. He was beginning to feel overwhelmed. It took about uh, 20 minutes before I decided that he was in a diabetic coma. At first, uh, it looked very much like uh, meningitis, like meningococcal meningitis. And when I first laid eyes on him, I have had cases like that before that go downhill very quickly with kids, and they do die. Dr. Angus Matheson, the Kilmer family doctor, just happened to be in the hospital and was quickly pressed into service. The two docs knew time was running out. They needed expert advice fast, and they needed it 107 miles away at the University of California Davis Medical Center. Barish and Matheson quickly dialed up their portable terminal that connected to the pediatric critical care unit in Sacramento. At the other end of that call were two of the best pediatric intensive care specialists in California, Karush Parsipur and Jim Marzin. Within seconds after the video and audio link was established, the four doctors worked together to save Ian's life. Dr. Marson, I have a 10-year-old here whose uh, IV has infiltrated. As you know, he has uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. And uh, I have a call into Dr. Dawson, who will be here in about 10 minutes, and he can put in a cut down. All right. Well, I think with his mental status, we should really move forward to either a central line or an I.O. We don't really have 10 minutes. Uh, Dr. Barish, when you were talking to the doctors at the medical center, you told them that you had contacted a, an emergency doctor, a surgeon, who was coming to help you with uh, Ian. But they told you you didn't have 10 minutes. How did you feel at that point? 
that was very frightening because I realized he was right. I knew he was right. I wanted to get a line in. I was just uh, telling myself that Dr. Dawson, the surgeon, would be here. He could be here in 10 minutes, and, and, and that would be enough. And they, they reinforced what I already knew, which is what he, he needed a line. What I'm generally putting in with adults is what's called a subclavian catheter, which goes up under the clavicle. The, the danger of that is that you can hit the lung. And he's already fighting for his life. That, that, would, you know, that would be much worse than not giving him the fluids. Those who go into a diabetic coma are dehydrated and need fluids. Veins that are normally used for IVs collapse and become impenetrable. So Dr. Barish needed to access the femoral vein near the groin, something he had not attempted in 20 years. I think, maybe, can we put in a femoral line then with him? Well, I could try. I haven't done it in about 20 years. I can talk you through it. If you've done a subclavian, it's just a couple pointers, and we can go ahead and get that in. But we really should do this as soon as possible. Okay, I have the artery, and I and I think and I'm just medial to the artery, and we're touching the IV. Very good. And it seems to be working fine. Great, perfect job. Good shot. A sigh of relief came as Ian began to get life-saving fluid. After his vital signs were restored, he was immediately transferred to the pediatric intensive care unit at the UC Davis Hospital by ground ambulance, since the bad weather grounded helicopter transport. Once at the hospital, his insulin levels were regulated. Ian had just suffered a diabetic coma. He had no symptoms and no previous diabetic condition. We were quite concerned with Ian's condition because he had diabetic ketoacidosis or the diabetes out of control and there's a certain population of those children that are at risk of getting brain swelling and from this brain swelling nearly a third of the patients die. Marzen says that there's a lot of data that suggests that people who live in rural communities don't have the same access to specialists as those living in large metropolitan areas. Telemedicine gets rid of this distance barrier for them and so they have access to the specialists that they need and the goal is to raise the health care markers for the people living in rural communities. Dr. Tom Nesbitt who founded telemedicine in 1992 has focused much of his work on tackling geographic disparities in rural health. He says telemedicine is used every day largely because there is a shortage of rural doctors. One of the reasons that physicians leave rural areas is that they feel um, not supported and vulnerable and so if we can provide them specialty consultation um, we can provide them with ed continuing uh, medical education that supports those doctors staying in communities. Voters last November approved State Proposition 1D which will provide 200 million dollars to the University of California to expand medical education using new technologies. Telemedicine and telehealth is an idea whose time has come. Um, UC Davis, for example, has been very active in this area for a long time, but now there's so much more interest in the infrastructure, trying to make broadband generally available, trying to spread it um, throughout the state. Last fall, Governor Schwarzenegger attended a UC Davis pediatric telehealth conference where he announced the signing of an executive order to improve broadband connectivity in the state. Nesbitt says that visit was pivotal. I think what it shows is not only that telemedicine has really become accepted, but it also shows that the state, um, through the governor, has a vision of a digital highway that includes health care and that that health care is no longer limited by your geographic location.
that hopefully, eventually, anybody anywhere in this state will have access to the best quality medical experts. Who's this one? Brownie. Brownie. And who's this one? Is this one Chance? Yeah. See, I remembered their names. Dr. Karush Pasipur, who assisted Dr. Marzin with Ian, says using this technology saves time for both the patient and the doctor. Trying to diagnose or help a physician using these, this telemedicine technology, it actually is quite a big help for us. Sometimes that's all you need to figure out exactly what's going on. Just by seeing the patient, you can you know, really figure out exactly what needs to be done. Do you have more energy to ride horses and stuff now? Yeah. I bet. Before this case, Dr. Angus Matheson, Ian's family doctor, was skeptical of the benefits of telemedicine. It was amazingly useful to have them able to see the patient and see what was going on with him. I think it was helpful for the parents to see the doctor on the end who we were talking with, who, who was then be able to, everyone knew the plan because they were talking to it. I, I actually have to say that this case really changed my opinion of telemedicine. Telemedicine also provides easy follow-up health checks, as was the case with Ian. And we're working on medicines right now that we can give to children when they're acutely ill so that they don't develop uh, cerebral edema. Uh-huh. Well, I'll be looking for the outcome of your study. That sounds interesting. Telemedicine will soon transform the way medicine is practiced today. It will be available in more clinics and hospitals, allowing more specialists to advise doctors throughout California. For example, paramedics and ambulances will use portable television monitors so they can communicate directly with emergency room doctors. The possibilities, experts say, are endless. On that cold winter day in Willits, Cassandra Kilmer's life changed forever. We've definitely learned over the last couple of years that life is, life is precious and you never know when it's going to end and we have to enjoy the time that we have together and make the most of it. We'll be fine. Reporting from Willits, I'm Paul Fotenauer. The preceding program was brought to you by UC Davis on iTunes U. Please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu.